Well, reason for the call today, John, is... Welcome to Internal Use Only. Something just came across my desk, John. It is perhaps the best thing I've seen in the last six months. If you have 60 seconds, I'd like to share the idea with you. Got a minute? A podcast for wholesalers. Always be closing. Always be closing. By wholesalers. Blue Horseshoe loves Anacott Steel. Okay, before we get started, I have one question. Has anyone here passed a Series 7 exam? I have a Series 7 license. Good for you. You can get out. Let's cut to the chase. Here's your host, Dan Sullivan. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Internal Use Only Podcast. If you're new to the show, it's great to have you here. This is now our 62nd episode, so longtime listeners will know that most of our episodes are interview-based. I wanted to mix things up for our last episode of 2023 by doing a mailbag. This is all questions that have come from the audience through an audience survey that I launched on Instagram back in November. So for anyone that hasn't been following the Instagram page, Go check us out on Instagram at internal use only podcast. Back in November, I posted a, a poll asking the audience if they would like to do a mailbag or a, a Q&A episode of sorts. And the answer was a resounding yes. So 100% of respondents said that they would like to see an episode like this. And over the next week, I had listeners submit their questions through the Instagram. So all of these questions came from you, the audience. If you haven't found the Instagram page, please check it out. You'll get episode updates. You'll find stories. You'll find wholesaler content, all things about the show. And as we move into the next year, you'll get more links to episodes, archives, and all of that. So a lot's happening on that front. This show wouldn't be possible without the engagement, thoughts, support, and encouragement from all of our listeners. We are having an audience survey that is live until the end of December. It'll take a few minutes to answer and it will really help influence the show. Tell us what you love. Tell us what you'd like to see improved. And if you do so, you'll be eligible to win cash prizes or podcast merch. And I'll be selecting all of the winners early in January. So thank you for those that did participate. If not, there's only 11 days left. It'll only take a few minutes. You'll see the link in the show notes. You'll see the link on the Instagram page. If you can catch me on LinkedIn, I'll make sure you get it as well. Super easy to fill out and it will be available for you through the end of December. Real fast, a very quick programming note. We're going to be taking a break around the holidays, probably much like many of you. Our next episode will go live on January 9th. So we typically try to keep our scheduling every two weeks posted on Tuesday. The next interview that we launch will be on January 9th. All right, let's get to it. So our first question comes from Dan. He is in Pennsylvania. Is it industry standard to have a mutual fund wholesaler and an ETF wholesaler. It's hard to put a finger on whether this is industry standard or not. Having two different wholesalers that cover different product lines is totally going to be dependent on the size and scale of your firm. So I do know that there are a few different firms that have that kind of overlapping coverage. In that instance, you would have a mutual fund wholesaler and an ETF wholesaler, presumably calling on the exact same advisors. Um, I've heard some interesting stories about how that can be productive or potentially competitive. It's it definitely seems strange that you would need to have two different people in the same meeting representing the same firm's products just because they're different vehicles. But as you think about potentially like specializing, 
there are some groups that do have both product lines or both vehicles covered. I would have to go back and check. And anyone on the audience, if you do have that kind of coverage breakdown, let me know. But I want to say, I think JP Morgan Asset Management, if I understand correctly, I think they're large enough and have that kind of coverage where there's an alt person, there's an ETF person, there's a mutual fund person. So yes, that does exist, but I am not quite sure that it's industry standard. I'm sure there are far more groups that have wholesalers covering most of their all product lines, as opposed to having it be separated by, let's say, ETFs or mutual funds. As a side note, what's probably more industry standard is having some form of product specialist at the firm that has that subject matter expertise and is a resource or is made available to the different wholesalers out there covering various territories. So I would say that's probably more common, but great question. Uh, I couldn't even imagine how ridiculous it would be if you're out there and you have to basically like loop in another wholesaler and you're competing <laughs> with with them or uh, trying to like overlap each other during an actual meeting with an advisor. So uh, call to action from anyone listening. If you are in a position where you are sharing that kind of territory, let us know and give us the good, bad and ugly. Maybe we'll run a separate episode on that. All right, moving on to our next question. This one came from Ryan in Ohio. What are your thoughts about industry consolidation and do advisors actually benefit? This is this question came in and immediately I thought, all right, well, I could probably do an entire podcast episode or even a series of podcast episodes with somebody who's involved with some of the mergers and acquisitions that are happening in the industry to cover all angles, whether it's from the asset manager side, whether it's from the advisor side. But I think anybody who's in the field right now, let's say you're a wholesaler, there's kind of two ways that wholesalers are experiencing this. So the first one is when asset manager A and asset manager B decide to merge or one gets acquired. I think the biggest example of this, if I remember correctly, like the largest M&A between two asset managers was in recent memory when Franklin Templeton acquired Putnam. So that, those are things that are like very much so happening. And all of these different consolidations or mergers, like any other business and industry, they're likely going to be a result of one firm trying to either access new markets, maybe reduce competition. Wholesalers out in the field, it's interesting. You kind of think about how many other individuals at a different or competing firm are out there doing the exact same thing that you are selling more or less the exact same product to the same audience. So from that perspective, I think it's definitely interesting. Something else, though, that is a little stat that we'll pull here. So big time stat guy over here as we host the podcast. But PwC recently just did a survey and 200 and they surveyed, I think it was 250 asset managers. So 73% of them indicated that they are considering an acquisition. Who knows how often or, or to what degree of frequency that would actually happen. So just by saying like 73% are considering it doesn't mean that we're going to necessarily see that. But I do have a sense that we're going to continuously see some of these firms out there going to purchase either boutique managers or try to get access to certain asset classes. The best one I can give you is going to be alternatives. Like anytime you see groups going out there to either acquire an alternatives manager or to maybe build out like an alt capability in-house, that is purely, purely going to be based on how we are with this fee environment right now. Firms are not making as much revenue from traditional or long-only equity or 
fixed income mutual funds. And the alternatives carry the fees that are really going to allow them to upcharge and have a little bit more revenue coming in from the asset management divisions. A good example, this isn't necessarily like retail based, but Wilshire, who is a, a US consultant, they've got a number of different business lines as well. They just finalized the acquisition of Lixer Asset Management, which is like a $20 billion alternative group. They purchased them from a Monday. That makes Wilshire have a more competitive hedge fund managed account offering. So this kind of like consolidation or acquisitions, I think on the alternative side is maybe where wholesalers will see it from like asset manager to asset manager. When it comes to how an advisor is impacted, so in this case, like a financial advisor, I would need to defer to someone who has actually gone through this. I had a couple of conversations as I was getting intel from various advisors that listened to the show. A lot of some of the hassle about an acquisition has to do with paperwork and notification to clients. I would need to dive deeper into that. So perhaps we'll park this one for another episode where we go through like the actual impact on the advisor when there's an asset management merger, basically like Temple, like Franklin Templeton and Putnam. So maybe somebody who's listening has an advisor they've worked with that was with them throughout that whole merger and can tell some stories about it. But I didn't want to necessarily go through and give an opinion on my own without having somebody who actually experienced that go through it. Yeah. So consolidation in the industry for asset managers, I would say expect to see more of it and how that impacts advisors and the broker dealer platforms. We'll cover that in more detail on a future episode. All right, moving on. This one comes from Dimitri in Massachusetts. What do you see as the biggest barrier to entry in wholesaling? Uh, the biggest barrier to entry in wholesaling, I think has and always will be the licensing process. Um, that's a requirement if you want to work in the industry, no matter what kind of securities firm or broker dealer that you work for. So that's really the biggest one. Secondary and maybe less important is probably just how niche of an industry wholesaling can be. It's one thing to have a sales career path, but unless you really have any exposure to financial advisors or asset managers, it's difficult to actually find the career path. So I'm going to talk about both of those separately. First, let's talk about the actual barrier to entry, which is the licensing program. So as you're aware, in order to become a registered representative, you need to at least pass the FINRA Series 7. In order to get your Series 7, you have to have a sponsoring broker dealer basically let you take the test and you'd, you'd be either an employee or a sponsor, obviously, through that firm, sponsored by that firm. Something that FINRA has done to help boost the eligibility criteria has been the launch of the new SIE program. So if you're not familiar with the SIE, um, this is like, I took my Series 7, I think in like 2014 or 2015, and this is even new since then. So anyone that's been in the field for 10, 15, 20 years, this might be completely new. But the SIE is called the Security Industry Essentials Exam. And the best way I can describe it is it's almost like half of the Series 7 but what it does is it's a, an exam. I think it's like 80 questions or 70 questions. But anyone, you don't have to be a part of a broker dealer or sponsored by a broker dealer to take it. And that or that exam, like if you pass it, it's essentially a, intended to give younger up and coming or those that want to get into the industry a baseline qualification that indicates that they are equipped with basic knowledge that you would find on the kind of things like the Series 7 exam. From my understanding and people that have taken the test, I think the big difference is once you actually do take the Series 7, if all of us remember, 
there's way more questions about like options and very specific calculations. I think the SIE is a little bit lighter, but the SIE does let people actually get that qualification. I think it's $80 and you don't need to be a uh, sponsored by a firm. So I think that definitely helps. The second thing here is how you would find the role and like where we're sourcing potential people to join the industry. I worked on a couple of large firms desks. So these were like sales desks with, you know, probably 60 plus internals there. If I had a survey of where these people came from, it would be financial advisor's child or someone who knew the financial advisor, uh, a family friend or somebody that knew a current employee. And that was basically it. Like it's a very cottage industry in the sense that most people that are found their way to a sales desk was because they knew someone who made an introduction or they had a, a family friend or a friend that was a financial advisor and that's where they could get their start. How we change that, I don't know. But I think those are probably the biggest barriers to entry really is just one, the, like the licensing to become a wholesaler. And then second, awareness of the industry. If you don't know someone, it's not like there's people going to college campuses recruiting for, for you to become a wholesaler. Our next submission comes from Christopher. He's outside of Nashville. So this one's fun because it's a little bit of a story and a question attached to it. So his story goes, when I cover wholesaling for 16 states, you tend to develop a wholesaler sixth sense. Recently, I was in a hotel. I looked around and I thought I saw somebody that looked like a wholesaler. Lo and behold, an advisor came in to have a meeting with that wholesaler in the same location as I was doing work. So the question that he has is, first, do all wholesalers have a look in parentheses? And second, do they all sound the same? So let's break this down by the first one. Do wholesalers have a look? I'm going to try to remove just the title of wholesaler right now and focus more on someone who is in a traveling sales role that is on the road having meetings with like external clients. I think that is a look that anybody who's done the role, whether you're a wholesaler, maybe you're a consultant, you just kind of get the gist of like, okay, this person's dressed up well, maybe more dressed up than other people around. Like, why are you wearing a like a dialed in suit and tie to a coffee shop near a Merrill Lynch office, right? Like if, if someone is doing that, that's probably a wholesaler too. You think about exchanges and encounters too at airports and things like that, where you're sitting down at people and it's like, oh, you can look at them and say, if I had to guess, I would probably say they're in some kind of like external sales role or outside sales role, whether it's wholesaling or, you know, some other kind of industry that's similar to ours. I would also say that most people are taught to wear more neutral colored suits. And again, this is just on the, the men's side of things. I can't speak as much for what female attire is like when they're out traveling. And if the same mutual like look situation applies, we'll have to pull the audience. But like almost everybody is wearing some kind of dark blue suit or a gray suit. And so to me, those are some of those tells when it comes to the quote unquote look. So good question there on like how people present themselves externally when they're out on the road. I would say the second question here is interesting, which is, do all uh, salespeople sound the same? This probably has to go back to how everybody is taught and trained when they enter sales. Usually it's pretty structured. There's a similar approach that you take, whether you're working at a large firm or a smaller firm, there's kind of ways that you're taught to pitch. I have always laughed that there's a distinct tone of like distinct difference in how I'm speaking 
when I'm doing a sales pitch or presenting a product to how I would in everyday conversation. So when you say, do, you, do people sound the same? I would laugh because anytime I've been to a conference or event, cocktail hour, whatever, you can always tell the point of the conversation where somebody's trying to actually pitch or is saying, like speaking as if they're selling or if they're just having regular day-to-day conversation. So both of those are great that you brought those up. Those are both very astute observations about like the wholesaling career path. So thank you, Christopher, for submitting. This one comes from Joe in Hoboken. Any thoughts on how to overcome feeling too young when dealing with advisors in their 50s and 60s? This is exactly how I felt when I started in the field. And the best advice that I can give you is don't feel like you're too young. Like you're there in the role. You're deserving of the role. All I would say is that anyone that's in their 50s and 60s, they've probably been in this industry almost as long as you've been alive and have a lot that they can share and a lot that they probably are expecting out of the wholesalers that they work with. So if there's any thoughts or advice that I can give you is level set and always ask your clients or advisors and prospects. I'm sure you've dealt with wholesalers in the past. How would you, what, or what would you think is going to make this a strong relationship? How can I help you out? What should I know about your experience with wholesalers that would help me better work with you? Really just getting an idea for their perspective on the industry and their experiences is going to be super helpful. No matter what, like anytime you're dealing with a large number of people like you do in sales, you're going to have people that are really nice to you. You're going to have people that might be assholes. You might have somebody who doesn't want to work with you purely because you're younger. That might happen, but that's out of your control. So the things that are in your control are just the confidence and your attitude. You know what you know what advisors are thinking what they need. You've got that experience, you've got that intelligence. Don't be afraid to bring it. At the same time, just recognize that because you are younger, maybe you got to do a little bit more relationship building up front. All right, uh, last question. This one comes from Jen in Colorado. You ask guests a lot about travel stories or funny situations during meetings. What are some memorable ones for you? Um, Ooh, this is a good one. I've got a couple. So I'll give one that's more of like a, like a practical wholesaling uh, story. And then one that's more of like a wild and random story. So, uh, interesting that this question, very interesting that this question came from Colorado. So this was, uh, December of 2018. If I'm remembering my dates correctly, there was a huge run like 2015 to 2017. Someone needs to go fact check me on this. But there was low volatility. Markets just continued to go up. Every day was basically like equities going high with minimal volatility. We had a meeting in Colorado at one of the Colorado pension plans. And the meeting was with one of their investment officers, I want to say, who was responsible for, I want to say it was like their liquid alternatives portfolio. So I can't remember exactly what the analyst's coverage was. During the meeting... I think it was like 11 a.m. Central Time or Mountain Time Zone, whatever Colorado's time zone is. And there was a, I want to say it was like a a 5 to 6% market correction that occurred during the meeting. And so for like two years where almost nobody needed to worry about what was happening in the stock market, this was really the first volatility event that the market had seen. And as you can imagine, being at a pension plan, that is something that you want to keep tabs on. And so I just, I vividly remember 
that analyst just like stopping in the middle of our meeting. Like we were having a good conversation and he just like looks at his phone and he was like, market just went down 5%. And myself and another wholesaler, we like looked at each other and we were like, holy shit. We were like, really? Because no movement was really happening. And so I just, I, I'm never going to forget the look on that analyst's face when he was like, I, I need to like, I got to go handle this right now. Or I have to go be prepared to figure out where we stand and everything. Yeah, I definitely won't forget that one. Market dropped by like 5%, made us scatter, made us all basically like abruptly leave the meeting. And then the next, the rest of the day, we were all just like, okay, so we're probably not going to be doing too many meetings following this because everybody that's managing money is going to be pretty, pretty busy. That jogs my memory. If you haven't listened to the episode with Libby Grywe, she is a coach for advisors now, but she used to be an advisor herself. She went through, a, we did a, a segment on our podcast where she explained how she had her first child and was in the hospital during the 2008 crisis while she was a financial advisor. So as far as like, where were you when the markets moved by X percent? Libby's story is one of the best ones that's been aired on this podcast as far as just the where, what, and how when there was a market correction. Another one that falls under the more like random and like what the hell just happened category one of the advisors that I worked with, uh, this was when I was an external, my uh, prior broker dealer, he was with LPL. He was based in Burlington, Vermont. Really, really good guy. Like one of those advisors that had our product in their models was fairly low key with the updates that he needed. And so we planned a trip up to Burlington in the summertime. And I remember it was like, it was just ridiculously hot. And he was like, do you want to just there's a bike trail down by Lake Champlain. You want to just, we'll, we'll take a bike ride. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. There's no reason we need to be sitting in the office when we're in Burlington, Vermont, when it's nice out. So I grabbed a rental bike. He had a bike on him because of course he lives in Vermont and bikes to work. We just start going down this trail on Lake Champlain. And so I think our, our route was like four miles or something like that. We hit this bridge and there was like unsuspecting there was just this kind of like little boat wasn't big at all like like a little sailboat and i'm not a sailor i'm not someone who has any information on that and we like took a brief pause and the advisor's like huh that's a little bit weird and he goes on to explain he's like a he's obviously a, a sailor he knows some stuff and he's like yeah that's definitely weird we should we should keep tabs on that so i don't think too much of it we bike to the end of our route or wherever the hell we're going here and then we double back and so as we approached the bridge, there were like multiple ambulances and like fire trucks there with their sirens on. And so we were obviously like, oh shit, something probably is going on. And we're like sitting there for 10 minutes. We still don't see anything. This boat is like still in the water. It's like a little inlet kind of by like the main lake. Very shallow too, by the way. And so all of a sudden I just remember being like, all right, that's, that's kind of odd. We head out put the bikes back. We sit down, we grab wings and a beer. And he just is like, that was weird. I, I don't know what was going on there. And I'll keep you posted on that. And so I drove home to Boston that night. It's like three and a half or four hours, whatever it is. And then the next morning, that advisor sends me a text message. And there was like a lo you know, Burlington local newspaper that was like, it's like man, man found, drowned, like abandoned boat. And so the two of us were just like, um, all right, that was a little bit wild that we just kind of experienced like the before and after that. 
obviously tremendously sad, but that was one of those completely random occurrences that happened just purely based on a work trip for me. So that's one that I probably won't forget. So um, yeah, Colorado with the market dropped and then the advisor and I, I'll try, <laughs> try to dig up that article. It's not like anyone wants to see that article, but um, yeah, that was that. And that's a wrap for our first ever mailbag. Everyone that submitted questions, thank you so much. Uh, I love that the audience is tuning in and wants to engage like this. I think that's what makes this show different. I would absolutely love to have more episodes like this, more mailbags. So continuously send in your questions. If we will batch them together and get episodes like this with a regular frequency, if that's what you think is going to be best, or if you think this is a fun structure. So as always, I appreciate your feedback formally. Check out the survey. 11 days left to do it. I know, selfish plug, but I do want to reward you and give out some cash prizes for your feedback. And then informally, reach us out, uh, reach out to us rather on Instagram at internal use only podcast. Our email is internal use only podcast at gmail.com. Reminder, we'll be back in action on Tuesday, January 9th with more episodes. And until then, you got 11 days left in your sales year. I'm sure everyone's looking forward to the 2024 from a sales perspective, but before we really dive into the next calendar year, I hope you can enjoy some time off with your friends, with your families, enjoy the holidays, and we'll be back in action again on January 9th. Thanks for listening. Find us on Instagram at internal use only podcast or email us at internal use only podcast at gmail.com.